Hello and welcome to the Sekiro Podcast. My name is Park Kelly and as always I'm joined by Oshin Collins. Hey Park. Hi Oshin. Don't forget everyone, the Sekiro Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, pretty much every podcasting app there is available. So like, subscribe to the podcast, tell a friend, share, all those things. This week we are talking European final action. But before we do that, we'll take a quick look at the rugby news this week. And the first story is one of certainly personal interest. There appears to be a last person out of Munster turn out the lights going on. Was with the coaches, Flannery and Jones have both turned down fresh contracts. It's a little bit of a concern. I don't know whether they want to do something a little bit different or whether there's concerns with the overall direction. There's very little leak as to why coming out, but it's a big concern. Well, I'm not surprised with Jones. Like He has learned through the press effectively that they're looking for a new attack coach. That can only undermine him. I think what it probably would have meant is him having a narrowed focus. Maybe he's in charge of backs and skills, but not necessarily the whole attacking game plan. And don't get me wrong, Munster do need a bit of fresh breath in that area, but I wasn't expecting a full turnover. And certainly our scrum and our pack have been relatively good this year. So a big concern to see Jerry Flannery moving on as well. Very interested to see where they end up if they keep in rugby. For sure, Jerry Flannery obviously has time working with Arsenal back in his career. So maybe it's a complete career change for him. The other really disappointing news this week is that Bill Johnston, one of the young 10s in Munster, is moving on to Ulster next season. Really lit up the Ireland under-20s in the World Cup and just isn't getting the game time that he needs. I've been really impressed with any time he's played for Munster. Um, He is going to shine up in Ulster. He's going to get a lot more game time. Billy Burns can't play every minute of every game and with his talent, he can only go on to good things. One player who won't have welcomed that news is Johnny McPhillips, who was behind Bill Johnston at the Ireland Under-20 setup and can't be delighted to see him getting parachuted into Ulster as well, probably ahead of him in the pecking order. Yeah, he's seen very little time on the pitch this season and it looks like it's going to continue. Speaking of transfers, a huge volume of business being done in the market by London Irish. Like The list of players they are bringing in is enormous. It's absolutely insane. Like in addition to Sean O'Brien, they've signed Wasaki Naholo, Sakopi Kepu, Nick Phipps, Curtis Rona, Alan Dell and Adam Coleman. Like that's a huge amount of players and incredibly talented players as well. Not to mention a certain out of favour Irish out half who isn't necessarily a popular signing with a lot of the fans and will probably keep people away from the gates. Risky call. It is but in a World Cup year how many like Southern Hemisphere 10s are there available? Fair. And it does appear to be mostly a raiding party in the Southern Hemisphere. You've got a number of super rugby stars there. The likes of Wasaki Naholo, obviously, is a hugely successful all-black. Nick Phipps is, I mean, he's a hugely capped Australian nine. I personally think he's a liability, but that aside. (laughs) And Adam Coleman has a number of caps for the Wallabies as well. These are good signings of a very high quality. Well, that's just what you need to stay up in the Premiership. Until they ring friends like they've been threatening for now, what, two seasons? Mm. These are the type of signings you have to make to stay up in the Premiership. Other big news this week, the referees for the Rugby World Cup have been announced. Uh, two English, Barnes and Pierce, four French, Roman Poit, Jerome Garcés, Pascal Gauzer and Matteo Reynal, Nigel Owens from Wales, Jaco Piper from South Africa, and then two from Australia, Angus Gardner and Nick Berry, and Paul Williams and Ben O'Keefe from New Zealand. Good panel, a lot of French refs. A lot of French refs, but on balance you'd have to say they are actually the best refs in world rugby at the moment. I think depending on your own personal interpretation, but certainly these are the guys we're seeing week in and week out at the top level. little disappointing from the Pro 14 that there's literally just one representative in there, though. There are a few more in the assistant ref panel, but 
yeah, you're right. This just isn't a good look for the Pro 14. And not a good look for rugby in general. Bit of news coming out of the Kinsale Sevens. Brilliant competition, really good fun, but 29 arrests for incidents including public order offences, suspected drink driving and drug driving, and possession of drugs with 60 detections and 11 grand's worth of drugs found. That's a... uh, that's a busy weekend. It's not a great look, but I think that the party atmosphere of Sevens may have gotten too much for some people. A little bit out of control. Speaking of a party atmosphere, or certainly a festival of rugby, we had two enormous occasions taking place in Newcastle this weekend. On Friday night, the Challenge Cup final, Claremont and La Rochelle. But first, we'll chat about the Champions Cup final on Saturday between Saracens and Leinster. Saris coming out 20 points to 10 winners, and deservedly so. Yeah, Saracens dominant from minute one to minute 80 in offence and defence, never once giving up the gain line and always getting over the gain line. Leinster didn't seem to be able to rely on their ball carriers to give them front football. Partly, I think some of that was technical, not taking the ball at pace in the contact, not getting crisp passes to them. There was a lot of slightly floaty balls coming from nine. But what Saracens were able to do consistently was double up on tacklers and just keep driving Leinster out and out and out, which forced them into, you know, lower percentage options. And Saracens do have a weakness in how they defend. They do rush up and there's space on the outside edge, but they rush up and such compact numbers. That's really hard to get the ball around. There are four or five players running up in a very tight area, one loose pass there, two there to get interceptions, and they got a few on occasion. We saw that, particularly as Leinster had to throw riskier and riskier passes in the last quarter of the game. Billy Vinopola taking two clean intercepts and, you know, metres away from a couple more across that Saracen side over the game as a whole. Even Leinster, with their ability to kind of run multiple layers of attack, whether that's Sexton or Ringrose or even Henshaw coming into a second attacking line, couldn't get outside that Saracens blitz defence. The line speed was just outrageous. But they have no interest in actually making a tackle. Their whole thing is just get up. Yep. Like, they're actually happy to run past you as long as they've stopped you getting the ball wide because the defender on the inside will hit you. What's funny, though, looking at the scoreline, it doesn't really tell the story of the game. Leinster were 10-0 up here. They got the first penalty, knocked it over, and then after some really, really good footwork from, and I can't believe I'm saying this, Rob Kearney, they were through in a dominant position right on the Saracens' five-metre line. It's good footwork around a prop who was injured. It was a great step. It was a good step, but like stepping a prop is like stepping a four-year-old child. I've played tag with you. I know the difference. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) But look, what was really impressive, I think, was how Leinster pressed their advantage. They did take that scrum on the line. They showed that they do have the physicality to get into the game. And particularly given that they kind of messed up the previous break, Jordan Larmore trying to stop and collect the ball rather than just kicking it on again. Yeah, which I was really surprised by because himself and McGrath were outstripping everyone for pace. Like, one of two players were going to score a try if he kicked it through. If he'd kicked it through, but I think it was just a little bit of try and regather it, like try and recreate another magic moment like that Leinster Munster try a couple of years ago. I think it was more panic. Get the ball in hand, keep it, because you know what? They didn't have a lot of it. They didn't get a lot of quality ball and Saracens just have so many heavy carriers in that pack that they can afford to just rotate them and keep playing phase after phase after phase. And that counts for their backs as well. Brad Barrett is a really physical carrier of the ball and Alex Good was there to bring a little bit of dynamism to some of their attack. Like They do have that natural second pivot. Like For example, we've seen with Cardiff when they have Jared Evans and Gareth Anscombe. It gives you a lot more avenues to attack with in this kind of a game. I like it watching it as an attacking platform because... It keeps defences honest without actually having to do much, but having a good ball player at 15. Let's talk about the big moment. Just before half time, 
Luke McGrath with Leinster 10-3 up decides to keep playing into injury time. Right decision? It was never the right decision. Saracens have just come back to a full complement. Have just got three points from a penalty. Their tails are up. And if you put the ball out, you're just killing their momentum straight away. But McGrath sends up a box kick that one, as we just said, was the wrong decision. And two, wasn't deep enough. If you're doing that as a tactic, that's got to land in the opposition 22 or on the 22 line. Like, There's a nice psychological thing about not being the team that kind of calls for half time. It's a little bit, you know, you want the other team to put the ball out of play that you're showing you have the energy to keep going. But there is a time to play cool, calm rugby and not to try and press home an advantage, particularly when there is not an advantage there to be pressed. The problem is Leinster gave away a penalty straight away from the catch. Saracens are now immediately in the Leinster 22 and eventually Leinster had to break in this game. And credit to Saracens, they built up that pressure, waited until Leinster was stretched, and then like an absolute fizzer of a pass from Spencer, and really both quick hands and quick thinking from Farrell to get the ball out to the wing. Try. But questions over Lammer's offence, that was still a three-on-three. He bit in on the second attacker instead of holding on his own. There was cover there. He had no need to dive in like that. You always force the guy inside, he can help with the tackle if a carry's made. But look, Farrell drains the conversion and all of a sudden all of Leinster's good work in the first half has evaporated. They're now going in at half time with their heads down having been pulled back. They came out in the second half and played with a little bit more energy but Saracens just suffocated them out of the game as they've done to so many teams this year. And to add to that, Leinster just weren't retaining the ball like they usually do. They were getting turned over on the deck. Balls getting ripped in contact like Furlong. Tyke Furlong getting ripped in contact. Robbie Henshaw getting ripped in contact. These guys don't get ripped in contact. Speaking of uncharacteristic performances, Gary Ringrose had probably the poorest game I've seen for him with Leinster. Best exemplified by a massive overlap that he just either didn't see or didn't get a call from his outside shoulder. But he looked at C here. He was almost outplayed by Alex Lazowski, who is not at the same level. I'm sorry. No, he's not. Ringrose is a top quality player who had a 70%, 60% game for him. In finals, you have to play at 90, 95, 100% of your own ability. In Leinster, what you could say, 7 or 8 did, and they're still within 10 points of Saracens. Like, they're not a bad team, they just didn't play at the level that they needed to. Discipline started to deteriorate a little bit as we went through the game as well. There were a couple of shouts for yellow cards for some of the Saracens players, you know, contact in the air, Sean Maitland with a training arm and Maro Itoje leading seemingly with the elbow into Johnny Sexton on a carry weren't penalised but eventually Leinster were the ones who in a kind of similar offside on the line Fardy saw yellow yeah and Garces was very clear the exact same situation that happened in the first half this is why Fardy was going off you know good communication you can't really critique him on that no and all you want is consistency and that's what he delivered and across his full performance on the day Saracens with 13 points to 10 up, Leinster very much still in the game. Then Billy Villapona did what Billy Villapona does. Yeah, I mean, it's as predictable as a Leinster driving mall try, which they didn't get in this game, strangely enough. Well, they needed a kick to a corner at some point, maybe. That would have helped. Yeah, it would have. But Billy Villapola, number eight charge off the back of a scrum. Yeah, that's pretty reliable as well. But look at the defence there. Ruddock actually got off the scrum really well to stop his momentum. And at that point, you're expecting the other defenders to help him. Sexton just, I don't know what he was trying to do. Then McGrath and Lowe were trying to rip the ball in contact, 
What are you doing? Get underneath him. Stop him placing the ball. It looked to me like Sexton was so far out of position to make that tackle that he kind of put Luke McGrath under pressure. But James Lowe, just a moment to look about it because his defence all game was tragic. Like He was either out of position, shirking tackles. I saw a couple of times where there was a big forward carrier and he was looking to get out of the way, not to get stuck in. And just the tackles that he was making was so ineffective. He was getting skittled all day. Well, between himself and Larmer, they had such little bearing on the game because the ball rarely got out of him in an attacking sense. So when you're called in a defensive sense, I say it was pretty cold. He well, he might have been cold, but Larmer and Lowe really were in that game for their attacking prowess. And neither of them is a stellar defender. Like you're looking at a Fergus McFadden or a Dave Kearney, if that's your objective here. Yeah. Leinster are recently prioritising the likes of Lowe, Larmore, Adam Byrne, who are so threatening going forward, but have a little bit to learn defensively. Really disappointing, though, in this game. I mean, Saracen's really pulled James Lowe's pants down here. <laughs> Ba-dum, boom. Yeah, that was pretty funny. <laughs> that was brilliant. Like, the, you know, who'd have thought that the moment of the match would just be James Lowe being pantsed on international TV? Yeah, by a former Springbok. That was, that was amusing. Um which we needed at that point, because at that stage, Leinster have just shipped 20 unanswered points, have gone from leading the game 10-0 to a 10-point losing margin. And really, at that point, it was running the clock out. The last 10 minutes, they just didn't look like they were going to get back. Their decision-making and game management across the 80 just baffled me. In the first half, Johnny Sexton didn't once kick the ball from hand. Like, not once did they try and pin Saracens back. And yeah, Saracens were making yards for fun at times, but let them do it from their own half, not your half. Mm. On 71 minutes, Leinster get a penalty. They're chasing the game. McGrath taps and goes. That's stupid. Lowe does it again on 81 minutes. Actually, I don't know who did it on 81 minutes because the camera wasn't looking at the game. They're looking at Saracen's players. You know, these things, this is what cost Leinster the match. Their game management. They actually had enough to win if they did things a bit smarter. That was the killer thing for me. This is a Leinster team with players in there who've got two, three, four Champions Cup winners medals, who've got Pro 14 medals, who've got Grand Slam medals. None of that rugby intelligence was on show. They were outplayed by the best team in England, one of the best teams in Europe, of course, but players who were just mentally focused on the day. Where you look at the players from Leinster who did make a positive impact, the likes of Ryan, Furlong, Healy, Fardy, Conan... They're the guys in the pack who were grafting through that game. They were carrying when they were put in a position to carry. They made their hits, but they weren't going to make the kind of game-changing interventions. The players who we do talk about when Leinster have those world-class Rolls-Royce games are the likes of Johnny Sexton or Gary Ringrose or Jordan Larmore. And those players didn't have the game they needed to to beat this Saracens team. I won't say the attitude was wrong, but the energy felt wrong from Leinster from minute one. So that's it. Another year gone by and no fifth star for the jersey. But oh, shucks. <laughs> there, there was one big moment on Friday night in the Challenge Cup final where Claremont finally got a European trophy. Not the one anyone expected. Not the one anyone expected. <laughs> Certainly not the one they wanted. But in front of a, about a half full St. James's Park, which better than I expected given a Friday night game with two French teams. We saw Claremont and La Rochelle really go at each other in what was a closer game than I thought it was going to be for a lot of the match. And it was really entertaining. Like, some really good rugby. My my favourite thing was them all that went 22 metres 
like as as ridiculous a, as a forward that was just beautiful to see. Well, when it did get to the back line, I mean, Raka for Claremont was just like ridiculous. It was just you know I can't believe shown before the watershed type stuff. He was yeah. throwing the most outrageous offloads and passes just for fun. Yeah, like one of the big things from this game is Parr getting injured though, and his World Cup seriously looks in doubt. Yeah, not a good night for the Claremont halfbacks with Camille Lopez getting lifted up and reefed into touch by oh, about three La Rochelle players. <laughs> Halfback, meat prop. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> and then all of his friends and he just carried him like a baby over the touchline. And then put him down feet first so not to concede a penalty, which Fair. was incredible. <laughs> like, I was looking at this and at about 50 minutes, I kind of was just trying to figure out how no one was winning this match and yet. And then Claremont did. And then Claremont just like got this monster mall, like you said, big advantage like that was a physical statement and a, a mental statement as well and for the last 20 minutes it was just Claremont's game yeah I don't know any team that would actually be able to lose after a mall like that because as a team that just makes you feel unstoppable yeah like that's the invincibility mall you know it was incredible but you know what 16 points to La Rochelle but 36 to Claremont really showed the difference between La Rochelle, who are in like their first significant European run deep into a competition, and Claremont, who, although they weren't in the Champions Cup this year, are absolute European royalty as well. And both these teams in the Heineken Champions Cup next year, these are teams you want at the top table. And that was it. We were relatively deprived of rugby this weekend, Porik. Yeah, just the two games of 15s this weekend. Although we did have the Toronto Women's Sevens this weekend, the Irish team having a really poor first day. And crashing out of the challenge competition. Couldn't even get to the final of that. Yeah, I saw the first day and it was actually really disappointing. The scorelines, not that they flattered the opposition, but we made mistakes. And Australia and Canada always made us pay with a try. And that was a difference. Like We were actually in both games, but any slight bit of a loose ball, we were immediately conceding. But look, at sevens level... Australia and Canada are the sides we need to be competing with. Certainly Canada is a team we've beaten a number of times in the past. To only get one try against each is a really disappointing outcome. No, that side of things is disappointing, but to say we weren't competitive is wrong. The scorelines make it look like we weren't competitive. Mm. At least we put Brazil away. Oh, with ease. Like, it was an entertaining game and really showed the strengths of that Irish women's sevens team. Definitely. So... What we will do, of course, is move on to our second row top performer and clown of the round from the weekend's rugby. Porik, you've picked our top performer and I suspect we might have to go outside the Pro 14 this week. Yes, this will not be coming from Leinster. Um, For me, the top performer has to come from a second row on the field. (laughs) You're very on brand, Porik. (laughs) And for me, George Cruz was the standout player across the 80 minutes for Saracens. He made the most tackles of any forward on the field and he was one tackle behind Brad Barrett, who got man of the match. He did a lot of dirty carrying as well, which I think is really important in games like this. Some of those hits were huge as well. It's not just the volume, but the quality. Like, there was one where he caught Johnny Sexton, what, about 10 metres behind the game line? His line speed in defence was extraordinary. Huge part of that Saracen squad. And they do read the offside line well, and the scrum half, so they know when to burst up legally. Yeah, no, I think he had a huge impact. Like, this was a Saracens performance that was built on that kind of raw physicality. And George Cruz is a little bit unspectacular compared to the likes of Maro Atoje and Mako and Billy. But he's the heart of that team. And I don't think it'll be long before we see him in an England shirt again. And don't forget, he calls their lineup and put Leinster under huge pressure on their ball as well. Well, I'm glad you found a second row to give the award to. <laughs> and you have picked our second row clown around. I have. And. 
it's just something that for me was kind of slapstick comedy in the middle of all of this. It's not going to be about poor performances. We've discussed that and it's not what Clown of the Round is about. The obvious candidate for this, of course, is James Lowe uh, stripping off on the pitch. <laughs> but I went a little bit more niche. There's one point in the second half where Maro Itoje is fussing with James Ryan at the Rock and kind of pulls his jersey up over his head. He's pulling, he's fussing with every single person on that Rock. Well, yeah, simultaneously. But James Ryan just throws the jersey off and keeps running in his like Avengers-style Under Armour, which is still Leinster blue, so very on brand. But I was every time he came into shot, I was just chuckling at like the shoulder pads running around the pitch. It just amused me. It just shows pure commitment to the cause that he had no time to put on his jersey. He was like, no, tackles must be made. <laughs> yeah, he, he certainly didn't want to stop for any minute of that game. But at the point at which you're running around looking like, you know, the extra from Endgame, it, it, possibly time to go put your shirt back on. <laughs> Honourable mention as well to the sound producers on News Talk who managed to overdub the commentary with stadium noise and make it unlistenable too, I believe. Yeah, I was actually driving during this game and I switched to Radio 1 because I could actually hear the commentary. I prefer Michael Corcoran as a commentator, but I would have liked to have heard Keith Wood at some point. <laughs> so... That's our second row top performer and clown of the round. Top performer is George Cruz and clown of the round is the sixth Avenger, James Ryan. <laughs> so we'll move on to next week's matches. The Pro 14 has three big games on, the two semi-finals and the Champions Cup qualifier. So on Friday night, we have Glasgow playing host to Ulster. And on Saturday, Leinster play host to Munster in an all-Irish semi-final. Two pretty monumental games and both the first and second teams in both conference going through. So hard to say that it's not the right lineup for semi-finals. Even, even you sitting here in a Connacht jersey probably have to admit that. Ulster were deserved winners against Connacht and they deserve their spot against Glasgow. That is going to be a tough game for them. Glasgow are hitting form at the right time of the season. If they can keep that momentum going that they had towards the end of the regular season, this will be a very hard game for Ulster. And a battered and bruised Leinster is probably exactly what Munster want, even though Leinster will not be lacking in motivation to go out and, you know, cast some aspersions on their doubters. Yeah, I just don't see Munster bringing that physicality that Saracens brought this week. A lot of that's going to depend on who's fit for Munster. Are Keith Earls and Joey Carberry going to make the match day 23? And if not, is John Van Graan going to pick JJ or is he going to persist with this Tyler Blayendal nonsense? Um, if we're going to play Munster's A game plan that's built around Carberry, we need the like-for-like like replacement. And then on Saturday evening, Ospreys host Scarlets in the Champions Cup playoff. Indeed, the lunacy about how many places the Pro 14 will have and what combinations and who needs to qualify, all over. Thank you, Leinster, for making that simpler. All of Wales thanks you. <laughs> well, not really, because now they have... Yeah, that's true, actually. <laughs> Wales is now mad at you again. <laughs> I think Ospreys should have a bit too much for Scarlets there, a lot like Glasgow finding a bit of form at the end of the season and they showed that ability to win knockout rugby with that win against Cardiff for the final day of the season Scarlets by contrast spent the last day of the season losing to the Dragons and have had a pretty rubbish couple of games recently so they're going to need all of the momentum they can get I'm still surprised Edinburgh didn't make this final in the end but you know what it's going to be a Welsh team in the Champions Cup next year we just get to see which one comes out on top on Saturday night we do. And that's us for this week. Thanks everyone for listening. We'll be back next week to recap all those games and see who our finalists are. So until then, goodbye and thanks again for listening. Take care, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>